and welcome to a special episode of FW Presents Find Your Joy, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, ostensibly your host for this episode, but this time out is really more of a showcase, <laughs> that word is used deliberately, uh, for my guest, if you will, because the Find Your Joy motto that we have adopted here has always been for more than just the network members who have our own podcasts, it's about the Fire and Water community. And so, for this episode, I am thrilled to welcome one of the Fire & Water Network's best friends from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, as well as the Legion of Super Bloggers. Please welcome Dr. Ange. What's up, Doc? Hey, uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for inviting me. I've really loved the sort of anthology show that you guys have run here, and I've kind of run through my head a number of things that I would say, like, what is my joy? And I kind of settled on what might be considered a weird pick, um, but uh, it's sort of one piece of a bigger context. And what is that pick? Let us know. Don't keep us in any more suspense. Um, I picked uh, Flash number 275 from July 1979 as sort of um, a key moment, I would say, in my comic book collecting and how I reflect back on it. I was glad. You you came to me with a number of uh, options, and this one I picked just because I had this one. Like, say, I I had read this one on Comixology back when I was doing the Secret Origins podcast. This had to be when I was prepping for the second annual of that book, because that was the Flash issue. And I think I was I was needing to go through some of the high points of Barry Allen's career, you know, before the crisis and everything. Well, had to be before the crisis at the time. And yeah, I, I remember having this book, and I was like, oh, I remember loving this cover, and we'll we'll talk about that, but... Yeah, when you suggested this one, I went back and reread it, and this is a fun issue, so I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to talk about it. So um, tell us about The Flash, issue 275. All right, we'll start out with the synopsis of this issue, and then we'll sort of go into why um, why I picked it for this. So this is Flash number 275, uh, which was on sale on July 12th, uh, 1979, and it contains a story titled The Last Dance. This is written by Carrie Bates, with art by Alex Saviak, inked by Frank Ciaramonti, with letters by Todd Klein, colors by Gene D'Angelo, and interestingly, edited by Ross Andrew, someone I usually associate with art, uh, specifically Spider-Man art. So the cover is really interesting, as you say. It depicts the Flash dancing with Batgirl at a masquerade ball. So the assumption is Batgirl is Iris. Uh, and in the foreground is uh, someone in a Wesley Dodds Sandman costume shooting someone dressed up as Bizarro, saying, Zap, you're dead. And Barry notes, if this wasn't a masquerade party, I'd swear the act was for real. But in the lower right is a hand holding an invitation which says, you are cordially invited to attend the last dance and witness the death of, and of course the thumb holding the invitation is covering the name. So that is like really, you know, this was the era of the spinner rack, and, you know, this is really a, a grabbing cover for all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you what did you think of the cover? I love this cover. I mean, just for, like, you're absolutely right. Like, if I was just, like, kind of flipping through this, I saw this on the rack or something, like, this is something that jumps out just because of the composition of it with, you know, essentially the leads like Flash and Iris slash Batgirl like kind of right in the center, but you get these different layers of foreground kind of, because you see the Sandman shooting Bizarro and it's really weird, and then even more so than that, you do have it tag, the death of, and we don't know who it is, so we but then just even the, the details of the background like, knowing that it's a masquerade ball gives it a sense of playfulness, but even if you didn't know that, like, the background people, it looks like the hunter Tris is dancing with Aquaman or, or um, Green Arrow and Black Canary, obviously, together. The reverse flash is with maybe Star Sapphire. It's just, it's kind of like just a funny little group of pairings and everything. And it's just, it's 
it's fun. It's it's the type of thing where you just I can't say that enough. But it's just like I look at this and I'm like, oh, this looks really cool. Yeah, I had no idea who the Golden Age Sandman was at this point. So I'm like, who's this guy in a gas mask with a gun? You know, and there was no internet back then. So it actually took me a while before I figured out, like, oh, that's who that is. And, you know, the play here is that you think that he's actually murdering whoever is dressed up as Bizarro, right? Like, somebody is at this masquerade ball as Bizarro. Who is that who has just been killed in front of our eyes? And so I'm like, oh, it must be, you know, a supporting cast member who's been shot, who's dressed up as Bizarro. And, of course, we learn later on... um, it's not. So it's kind of a nice feint on this cover to sort of uh, make you think one thing. Mm. Um, so I just love this cover. All right, so we open up with the Flash trying to race home to Iris, but his mind has been hijacked by Melanie, a teenage girl with psionics who is obsessed with him. Meanwhile, at the Allen household, we see Clive Orkin, a life force vampire, staring into Barry's home and watching Iris. Iris has been worried that Barry has been cheating on her. She's actually placed a tracker in his lightning bolt ring, and she decides the time has come for her to see where he is because she expected him to be home right now. So a lot of characters that I've mentioned here that might not be familiar to people, but we'll come back to this in a little bit. So meanwhile, Barry, his sort of mind has been taken over by Melanie, and he ends up running to a seedy motel on the outskirts of town where Melanie has reserved a room for them. She's been waiting to meet him and hopes to do things with him. Obviously, this being a motel, we know what she's interested in. She forces him to unmask and is shocked by how ordinary Barry looks with his mask off. And saddened by this and his not living up to her expectation, she zooms off. And we'll get into this a little bit because it reminded me of something that happened in comics that's a very similar moment, but sort of almost a decade later. So at the same time, uh, Iris arrives at this motel and sees Melanie zoom off. And she, of course, thinks the worst. Here's her husband in this motel and this young girl speeding away. So Iris decides she can't deal with it. She speeds away in her own car, but is driving so recklessly because of the emotional pain that she's in that she nearly kills herself and others. Flash has to act really fast to save everyone. And then he has to do some fast talking to save his marriage. He tells Iris all about Melanie and about how nothing happened. Relieved that Barry has been faithful, the two agree to take a big step forward in their relationship and try to have a baby. But before that can happen, they have to attend the Whitlock Masquerade Ball. Iris has decided to dress up as Batgirl, and her costume has arrived, but Barry, who was supposed to dress up as Batman, isn't so lucky. His costume didn't arrive. So instead, they decide to be a little bit playful and have him go as The Flash. At the ball, Barry runs into all sorts of friends dressed as both rogues and allies. Barry and Iris aren't the only guests we know. Hal Jordan has arrived there, and Barry's partner Frank is also there. And stowing away in the Allen's trunk of the car is Clive Yorkin, who we had seen earlier sort of skulking around their house. Meanwhile, to match the cover, we see someone dressed up as the Golden Age Sandman running around the party with a gas gun yelling, Zap, you're dead. At the party, Barry takes a drink of punch and finds himself suddenly woozy as if the punch was spiked with something strong. I guess this was before his hypermetabolism power came into play. He stumbles upstairs to check on Iris, who also drank the punch, and finds her on the floor, motionless. Standing over her is Clive Yorkin, who we assume has killed her. Given that Barry is so dazed, Yorkin is able to slip away, and Barry's system ends up being overwhelmed by the drug that's in him, and he passes out. As guests come in to investigate, they see Barry and Iris on the floor. One guest yells to call an ambulance. One of Barry and Iris needs to get to an ER immediately. 
but the other is dead. Dun dun dun. Duh. Quite a yeah, quite a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. So you know, I guess the whole thing here is that you know now we know that the last dance and the person that is going to die is Iris. You know, this is the Flash's book, and it's doubtful that that's Barry that's dead. And so, so this is a pretty pivotal issue in the Flash's history, um, and probably why it was on Comicsology and why you sort of reviewed it for Secret Origins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, for me, what this represents and why this is sort of a joy is that, you know, as I reflect on really now, you know, decades, I guess we could say like two score years of uh, of collecting comic books, this represents a, a sort of pivotal moment in my collecting career. Actually, the real pivotal moment was Flash number 270, which, of course, came out uh, earlier than than this issue. But that's where Carrie Bates came on. And there was actually a little bit of a push of house ads about like, this is where the Flash's life takes a tremendous change. You know, you should pick up this book. And, you know, this was a time in my life where I was walking down the street to the 7-Eleven and spinning the spinner rack and picking out whatever book had sort of the coolest cover, right? I had my favorite characters, but I wasn't collecting books sort of on a monthly basis. There wasn't such a thing. But this Flash book was the first book that I actually collected as best as I could on sort of a monthly basis. So that first issue of 270, he like takes on a demonic clown. And that's a three-issue arc where he ends up fighting that clown. (laughs) But during those issues, we get introduced to this girl, Melanie, who is a teenage girl who has ESP, who is basically completely obsessed with the Flash. And we also meet Clive Yorkin, who is a prisoner in Central City Penitentiary. And is subjected to an almost um, clockwork orange sort of experiment where they like force his eyes open and make him like see all of these horrible uh, images and as he's seeing these images they're like shocking him and giving him painful stimuli as a way to sort of like you know train him Pavlovian in, in a sort of way to not do crimes and ultimately of course comic book science being what it is he ends up with the ability to like absorb emotions and life force and becomes like a vampire and he plagues Barry over the course of the subsequent issues. And then, of course, Iris dies in the middle, and we think that Clive Yorkin has killed her. So these were subplots that sort of slowly built up over the course of time, over a year and a half worth of comics. And as a kid, where you were used to, like, done-in-one stories, this was the first time that I was like, oh, this is like something that is slowly building over time. How fascinating. I'm going to try to find The Flash every month on the spinner rack and read it. You know, this was like the first book that I really tried to collect on a monthly basis. And so this is kind of like an important part of, I guess, all comic book people's lives, right? At some point you say, I'm going to follow this title. Mm. And this was the first book that I did that with. Um, You know, so that was sort of fascinating. You know, back then, you were plagued by what you found on the spinner rack, right? You know, you never knew. I never knew what 7-Eleven was going to get. And so, you know, and there was no like, let me check, you know, the website to see what books are coming out today. Like, I just had to keep in the back of my mind, like, I guess it's around the middle of the month that Flash comes out. So I actually missed several of these issues. And I vividly remember that, you know, at some point there was a comic book show at a Howard Johnson's motel near the house that I like begged my older brother to take me to and this was the first experience like you walked into like a hotel ballroom and it was just long boxes right so it was and so (laughs) this was this run represents like my first encounter with that sort of experience i didn't know that back issues were available in this sort of way i just knew what was on the spinner rack so it was like oh my gosh i can like go up to a box marked f 
and go to Flash and find issue number 279, which I was missing, right? Like, yeah. I missed that issue for the longest time. And then, you know, I was brought by my older brother, It's and he gave me, like, you know, here's five bucks, like, buy whatever you want. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this, like, you know, it's like a buffet. <laughs> and then you had to sort of figure out what you wanted. And I can remember that Flash issue was one of those things that I said to myself, like, you, one of your missions, right, is is to find that particular book and buy it because we're missing that in this run. And so, you know, this was, it was, it was 279. I can remember the cover. It had sort of three vertical panels of Clive Yorkin draining the life energy from the Flash's body. And it was like, oh my gosh, how can I miss this key piece? And so comic book conventions are now a huge part of my life. This was my first comic book convention in a way. There were guests there. It was just like a flea market of <laughs> comics. So that was huge. And then, of course, it's going to sound weird that this is like a moment of joy. But, hey, the death of Iris was a big deal. Mm. You know, this was like one of the first deaths in comics that I experienced that sort of lasted in a way. You know, like there was all, you know, you never expected any characters like this to die. And she died and she sort of stayed dead. Yeah. Um, you know, so ultimately it turns out, you know, spoiler alert for this book that's now, I guess, you know, 40 years old. Clive Yorkin didn't kill her. The reverse Flash killed her. And so this whole arc, which sort of goes through, I think, 284 or 285, culminates with the Flash taking on the reverse Flash. And this was the first time that I read the reverse Flash, actually, in a comic and sort of learned about him and his obsession with Iris and his obsession with the Flash. And in the end, the Flash ends up killing the reverse Flash, uh, which, of course, leads to the trial of the Flash, which, you know, we all know about that story. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> like five years of stories? Or yeah, like 40 yeah, five, or something? yeah, yeah. But, you know, this was sort of like, you know, your kid, you know, I was, you know, nine at the time. And you say to yourself, like, these are these characters are immortal, except Iris wasn't immortal. She ended up dying. Yeah, yeah, that's a. It reminds me of. I mean, the first comics I ever read were three issues of GI Joe, and I remember one of them uh, included the death of Serpentor, who just was introduced in like the cartoons and the toys a couple of years earlier, and he was a big deal. He was the new like leader of Cobra. They made a whole like mini series about him and everything, and just reading about his death in the comics, I was like, wait, they can do that? They can they can just like kill this guy who's like a big deal like he's not coming back next week in the in the next episode or the next issue or something like that was that's fascinating yeah so i i do remember like the first experience with like a major character death in a comic i mean for me it was right away it was like my first in the first comics i read but yeah that's a that's a profound moment when you get to that yeah you know and the clues were kind of there like we had seen york and drain people to death and she's not drained you know so her body is sort of like not like when he does that you become desiccated and she's just sort of lying there dead so then you say like oh i guess he just manhandled her you know like broke her neck but that's not his mo so you should have known in this issue that oh maybe we're being set up here that he really didn't kill her and so you know you say this was issue 275 you don't find out who actually killed her until like 280 right and if you're a kid and you're hoping that you have 40 cents in your pocket to walk to 7-eleven and you hope that you're going to get this like 
this was a big deal. I had 14 consecutive issues of The Flash, something that I had never, ever really done before. I mean, that's not to say, you know, again, I was, this is before I sort of even had sort of pocket money of my own. You know, I would always pick up Superman if I could, right? But if the House of Mystery cover was cooler than Superman, I bought the House of Mystery. You know, I mean, really back then it was what cover stood out on the rack is what you ended up buying, you know, or at least me as a reader back then. So this was kind of like this big shift. So I always sort of equate this issue as kind of like the pinnacle of that run. And I always look at that run as kind of like a pivotal part um, of my collecting. And that's kind of like joyous when you look at how comics have been a part of my life all my life. You know, um, you know, this was kind of uh, a moment where I kind of like, you know, jumped a track and went from like a casual reader to like a more dedicated reader, I guess. No, I completely understand that. And I completely understand why you would bring you so much joy to sort of revisit that. I mean, so much of this series is about kind of the nostalgia. And if we can find that level of joy in contemporary comics or other media, TV, movies, and something like that, we definitely want to spotlight that. But certainly, like, the joy that you get from, like, these things that remind you of your childhood and these early nostalgic experiences, that's something that is really, really special. And I think it's also something that's very kind of universally relatable. We can all kind of think about that. And, and getting into this issue in particular, because... I don't have the same emotional or historic connection that you do have this series, but, you know, reading this issue again, this is a really good book. <laughs> like, this is so much fun to read. And, and for me, it just, it touches on so many of the things that I like. I mean, right from the beginning, the first page, the Flash is in trouble. He's not in control of his own body. Okay, that's a serious danger. And then, like, this little, tiny little insert caption where you have Iris, she's getting dressed, she's, or she's pacing around her room. And Clive York and this, like, nasty-looking fellow is spying on her through the window. Like, one of my favorite things in, in kind of, like, media is that sense of voyeurism uh, is one of the reasons why I really like the, the rear window. And the idea of, like, watching somebody who doesn't know they're being watched, like, that sort of spying idea or something, that just, it's a really fascinating thing, especially when it's a media that you are watching. So it gives you this weird kind of connection to the viewer in within the the movie or the, in this case the comic right from the beginning it creates this sense of unease and unsettling and, and kind of dread and this issue is layered throughout with like you know like just this palpable sense of dread that just keeps building and building and the sense of danger <laughs> well then so that's how it's set up that's how it's introduced and then we get to this moment where barry is forced to go to this hotel with this woman it's like oh my god is she gonna force him to cheat on iris you know like are we gonna end up having this conversation about the rape of a male character and everything like that but no it takes this really kind of preposterous turn when she forces him to unmask and she's like hmm that's <laughs> Yeah, it's not what I was expecting of you. It's kind of like this really sort of, well, that that hurts my feelings. <laughs> you think I'm just so ordinary? It's like, but my wife thinks I'm good looking. It's this kind of like weird sort of childish thing. And I, I couldn't help but remember the episode of Justice League Unlimited. Uh, there's a cartoon episode that Chris and Cindy Franklin will get to eventually, way down the line. Um, but there's one where The Flash, who is Wally West, and Lex Luthor swap brains, or like swap minds. And there's this moment where Lex Luthor is in The Flash's body, and he's like, well, I might as well take advantage of this. So he goes to the bathroom to unmask, to find out who is this, what is the secret identity of The Flash. And it's just like three seconds of him looking into his reflection, and he goes, I have no idea who this is. 
Yeah. <laughs> because it's not yeah. Bruce Wayne, it's not Clark Kent or or somebody like famous or whatever. It's it's a police CSI from Central City. It's like who well why would you know who that is? Exactly. Exactly. And for me when I read this, it re- it really reminded me of, you know, this is played out between Spider-Man and Black Cat at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. You see like, you know, like take me back to your apartment. Wait, you live in this hovel and take off your <laughs> your mask like, oh, you're just like some guy? Like she's like, you know what? I'm out. And and that's a huge moment like I know Spider-Man fans talk about that moment all the time and I'm like, boy, Carrie Bates did that. It's got to be 10 years before, right? That here's this uh, girl who's obsessed with the Flash who's just like, oh my god, you're so ordinary. And of course she dates this whole book where she's something like you know well maybe i should have been obsessed with john travolta instead right (laughs) which i think is like hysterical in its own way she she Um, even mentions like i was even prepared for the possibility that you might be ugly like there's some sort of weird phantom of the opera fantasy that she has yeah yeah Right. But ordinary is the last thing that I wanted. So, you know, so that is that's a great subplot. Um, And she ends up sticking around. You know, she ends up becoming like an ally of his in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So then Iris, of course, she walks into the motel and Barry's there alone in the motel. What else would she think? So she goes running off. She's in a panic. And I really like the construction of these pages six and seven when she's driving off. She's causing the crash of this oil tanker, it looks like. And like when it when she crashes, I was like, oh gosh! But I love the way the Flash grabs, like phases. He's he's moving it so fast that he he vibrates his molecules so that he can phase through the car and take her and have her face so that as she should be splattering through the windshield, cutting her face to a million pieces. Instead, he's like phasing her, so she's just kind of like vibrating through it, and so she's safe. And he's able to pass through the exploding cars, get her to safety, and then what we love to see the hero do, he runs back and saves the truck drivers too. And that's just a great moment. I I, I really like that heroic moment because, from as much as I love this issue, like we don't get a whole lot of the Flash being the Flash in this issue. Um, so it is nice that we do have this one good heroic moment where he's using his super speed the way he should in any good Flash story. So I like that. Yeah, as you say, that whole construction, and really, I love that panel where he ends up grabbing Iris and and, uh, flying her uh, through, um, by vibrating her through everything. That really is like a super heroic save, and that's, you're exactly right. That's what these comics were supposed to show you, where it's like heroes saving people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, he tells her the truth, and she (laughs) believes him, which I was kind of like, boy, Iris, you're forgiving him pretty quickly but okay except like i guess if he tells a sad story he's like we're yeah i was tricked into going to this motel by a woman who wanted to seduce me but she thought i was too plain looking and he, he just seems so pathetic that she's kind of like well no nobody who was cheating on their husband would make up a story this pathetic so you must be you must be telling the truth yeah, you know, um, my family has a big joke that, you know, at the end of The Godfather, when uh, Michael uh, tells Kay, you know, you can ask me this question once, and she's like, did you kill Carlo? And he goes, no. And she's like, oh, okay, let me get drinks. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> right? So it sort of reminded me of that. It's like, yeah, you caught me in a motel room with a young, nubile girl, but, uh, you know, nothing happened. She's like, wonderful. I love you so much. Right? So, But I guess, you know, their relationship is strong enough that, uh, and the story is so pathetic enough, as you say, that, that it probably... Nobody would make up that lie. <laughs> I've tried. I think it was a, a line from Futurama. It's like, oh, I want to believe you, so I do. <laughs> it's just like a complete personality switch. Just turn around. It's like, yeah, okay, we're fine. Um, and then, of course, uh, they decide to have a baby, which is the death knell for any kind of suspense story or whatever. That's that's the next step of foreshadowing. It's not only that they're being spied on in their private home, but they decide we're gonna have a baby. It's like, yeah, this isn't gonna end well. Yeah, so 
getting to the party, and it's a great on page 11 when we see everybody dressed up in their different costumes, these terrific... Um, we got uh, Captain Boomerang. It looks like the Phantom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Phantom Aquaman, is definitely in the background. I saw that. Yeah, Green Arrow, Black Canary, the Golden Glider, Captain Cold, Batman, Wonder Woman, Reverse Flash, Star Sapphire, Green Lantern, another Black Canary, Mirror Master, Sandman doing his zap, um, a Superman, uh, Abracadabra, I think, another Hal Jordan, Zatanna, uh, the Top Calculator, I think, Hawk Girl. Yeah. Heatwave, and I can't tell who Heatwave is talking to. It's another woman, but... Uh, it's another woman I can't tell. It almost looks like Hyathis. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because you love you some Hyathis. Because I love you so, Yeah, I love Hyathis. And, and I have to... Um, I have to figure out that that Superman character has to be one of the creators that they yeah. said, please put me in there, right? Because he's got glasses and a mustache and kind of a paunch. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, definitely. And then, of course, I don't know if you recall, there's a there's a panel where uh, Supergirl gives Flash um, a cup of punch, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, here you go, Flash. And I'm like, oh, my God, the two people that die in the crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm like, let's go fight the anti-monitor, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, and and Yorkin sneaking away, sneaking to the to the um, the party, the mansion in the trunk of their car, and then sneaking up on the Flash and seeming like to, but he dis- he unmasks him, and it's not Barry Allen, it's this other guy. He throws him off a roof or off a balcony. Sorry, um, I thought he killed him at that point. I thought that would have been like the first step to you know setting up the danger is one of the one of his friends dies, but he comes back. Um, and yeah, the panel with um, Supergirl offering the Flash a drink, and oh no. But what they do with the Sandman in this thing, I, I just love it. The fact that he's going up to everybody and just pointing this gun and zapping, like, the dread. Like, like even just reading this and knowing what was going on, I was I found myself unsettled by this. And it's the tension that Carrie Bates and Saviak 2 are able to build in this. It's just really well done because, first of all, setting it in a masquerade ball. I think there is a tradition of, of kind of danger and creepiness about that you know think about like the mask of the red death and and other kind of uses of that where nobody is quite what they seem you can't trust what you're looking at everybody's a little bit out of sorts and it's a way of like kind of sneaking up on somebody and so to have like a kind of lurking threat a predator kind of going around there um and the fact that you just have somebody just running up to you at random points and just pointing a gun going zap you're dead and that can create, like, I, I was feeling like the sense, like, I could watch this in a movie or a TV show, and that would be, like, a jump scare that you come back to again and again. And especially as the Flash starts to kind of, like, be, like, feeling a little woozy, feeling like like he's intoxicated or something like that. Something's wrong, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, it's just, it, the, yeah, the tension is building. And then, and then Iris is killed kind of off-screen. You just hear the sounds of the commotion and the the screaming and Flash sort of desperately hobbling, almost crawling to the bathroom. And when he gets in there, she's on the floor, and this maniac is standing over her. It's yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's it's a great payoff. So, and then he collapses, and you're right. And, and one of the doctor, the one of the guys who's a doctor, is like, one of these people is going to the hospital. One of these people is going to the morgue. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I love about this, like you say, this masquerade ball is crazy because if you look, about 50% of the people there are dressed as supervillains, right? right and so right. Paul, 
Right. And so part of what I was thinking was that, oh, my gosh, the jump scare is going to be like, I'm actually the real top. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and that's going to be the villain in the Clive Yorkin thing, because he's been sort of again, you know, he's been sort of like a subplot that's been going Um, You know, you, you kind of when things sort of simmer like that, you never know when they're going to sort of like reach that boiling point. So I said, maybe, you know, Clive Yorkin isn't going to be the killer here. You know, maybe it's, you know, somebody that we're not even expecting. And then I'm going to tell you something because you probably haven't read the issue. But it's not the punch that is causing Barry to um, be woozy because Iris isn't woozy. It right, turns right. out that that right. It turns out that that Sandman guy, that gun is actually like a drug gun, and he actually when he goes up to Barry and goes, you know, zap your dad. He injects Barry with like a ton of drugs. That's like a hypodermic gun, and because a subplot that's been going through this is that like oh there's like new drug runners in Central City. His partner Frank and him are trying to sort of you know break up this drug ring. And somebody knows that Barry is going to be there when they figure out that this flash is Barry Allen. They're like, we'll just OD him. We'll inject him with this gun. And so that panel where he goes, zap, you're dead. He's actually injecting drugs into Barry. So you find that out later and you're like, oh, you know, so that sense of dread is actually was real, you know. Mm-hmm. Was is the chief in on it at that point? Because that was like the one part of like the one little subplot that when he gets the phone call from the chief, it was like it seemed like the chief wanted him to be there, but then didn't go himself, and he's acting a little shady. Is the chief the guy on the phone that's in the shadows earlier? Yeah, I think it is. And I have to be honest with you, you know, I like I'm talking about how I love this run. This run was lost in the parental purge of the oh, late nineties. No. <laughs> so, you know, I only have a couple of issues and I've always said like maybe I should go back and try to recollect all of those. Um you know, I can only really remember the high points. Right. Um but uh but anyways, I do remember that this was like one of those subplots that was going along. It was like, you know, there was Melanie, there was Clive Yorkin, there was like the death of Iris, there was this drug run that was going in, there was this clown at the beginning of it, all of this stuff sort of like moving along slowly. Yeah. You know, in fact, the next issue, like the Flash is like pumped up on PCP. He ends up going up to the JLA satellite basically in like, you know, a drug induced rage and attacks the Justice League. Like, you have to help me save Iris, you know, the Purple Ray, Thanagar, like get the Phantom Stranger here to raise her from the dead. And they're like, you know, we can't do that. And he's like, fine, I'm just going to fight you. You know, so (laughs) so uh, so that's even another thing is that they're like, boy, you know, Barry's really lost his mind. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a great build-up throughout the issue, the sense of tension and unease as we're moving to a major character death, and then this cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, I was like, I was reading this again and watching it play out, I was like, this is like either a season finale or the episode right before a season finale of like a TV series, like the, the penultimate episode. I was like, this is, the way this is building to this crescendo is just so dramatic, so suspenseful, and just... Yeah, a lot of fun. So, yeah, even you know, even not having the same connection that you had to this run, I reread this issue yesterday and I was like, this brings me a lot of joy just reading this story. So I absolutely understand your love for this one. Yeah, and I think that don't you have like a special love for like masquerade ball issues? Like, isn't that one of your deals or no? I well, I mean, I again, I kind of like the the stories of, of, you know, people kind of like hiding in plain sight or disguises and things like yeah. that. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, that's always something that I, I do. I do kind of like whenever like something like that happens. It's just kind of like fun. And again, you get to see 
Again, half of these people are super villains in, in Central City, and it's like, really, you're just seeing, like, you know, the Captain Cold hobnobbing with Aquaman or something like that. Like, it's no big deal. Yeah, you know, imagine today it'd be like, hey, you know, you're dressed up as Captain Cold. He killed my neighborhood last week, right? Like, I don't know if you would necessarily <laughs> yeah. go around doing that anymore. Right, well, so. Yeah, and I've, I've heard other people mention that, like, the, the fact that the Flash Museum has, like, a whole monuments and wings dedicated to the rogues. It's like, these are bad people. Like, would, would we do that? Would we have, like, you know, like, I mean, again, like, Silver Age, you know, they're not, like, mass murderer Jeffrey Dahmer horrible, like, people, but it's still, like, I mean... They're crooks. They're gangsters. I mean, I guess. I mean, we do. We do sort of celebrate people like Al Capone and and kind of like like thirties and forties gangsters to a certain extent. I mean, we don't build monuments to them, but yeah. Is Sandman the only Golden Age character in this? Yeah, or, or I guess at, that, the at the time, even at the time, the Earth Two character would really. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to be honest. I don't even know when. I probably the first time I met the Sandman was in the whatever happened to the Sandman, right? And that's yeah. when I was like, oh, now I know who that guy is, because uh, I was like, I have no idea who this person is. And you're exactly right; he's probably Earth Two at this point. And then the only other one that I would, I mean, if you count the Phantom as a Golden Age person, but he's certainly not DC, and he's just in the background. Right. Right. I mean. You could recolor him and say it was the Crimson Avenger, but I mean, uh, I guess I'm assuming that it was intended to be the Phantom as a little Easter egg thing. But um, yeah, he's yeah, the Sandman is really the odd man out. But, and I, I love him. I, I mean, I've always loved this. I one of the first, you know, my uh, experiences was Sandman Mystery Theater. But then even just going back and reading the Golden Age Adventures, um, I, I still love that character a lot and the costume too. And so when I saw him on the cover, I was like, oh yeah, a little Easter egg for Sandman. And then seeing how he plays out in the story, I was like, this is even better. But. Yeah. I just love this issue. You know, I, this was, again, you know, I own this issue. Um, as I said, you know, as I've thought about this run, I said, you know, that way, if I'm going to have one issue, I'm going to have that issue. And so I bought that issue. And then I actually was lucky enough to run into Alex Saviak at a local con a couple of years ago, and I actually had him sign it. So, you know, this is kind of like a, a cool little piece in my collection. And, you know, you can definitely tell like that this issue is dated because none of these people are dressed up as slutty Harley Quinn. Yeah. Like 50% of the people you'd see today or at Comic-Cons or masquerade parties. That is true. That is true. I'm the Arkham Harley. Oh, I'm the Nurse Harley. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Do you have anything else to say about uh, this run or this issue in particular? You know, I, I don't think so. You know, uh, I, I just really love this run for what it represents to me. And I can tell you that it was sort of um, several years after this that I got um, a summer job that I really started to say to myself, um, yeah, you're going to pick five or six titles and those are the ones that you're going to collect. And, you know, it's not going to be whatever is cool on the rack. And um, and so I feel like this was the first domino of what has become a lifelong obsession. <laughs> <laughs> Collecting, yeah, yeah. And it well, this was a good one to, to start with. So, uh very cool, and and I'm glad that you brought this one to my attention, and I was happy to host this episode of Find Your Joy for your joy in particular, because this was a lot of fun, and, and I am sure uh, we're opening, the, speaking of opening the floodgates, I'm sure we'll have some more listeners and, and fans of the podcast network saying, ooh, ooh I want to talk about this issue. So I actually, as long as I can make the time for it, I welcome that. Um, if there's another issue that's straight, that you have as much love for, brings you as much joy, uh, let us know. It doesn't have to be with me. Go bother Rob and Shag about it too or talk to talk to Siskoid and and uh we'll we'll make some accommodations for it because that's what this network is all about um i say as if i have the authority to just you know <laughs> i arranged podcast shows for those other guys 
Dr. Ainge, thank you again for doing this. Uh, where else can people find you online if they want to uh, read more of your stuff or find out more of your love for comics? Uh, I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary, and I'm also one of the Legion of Super bloggers. And from a social media point of view, I'm most active on Twitter, where you can see me talking about old movies and hear about my ironing shirts. <laughs> <laughs> always fun. Uh, listeners, as always, you can follow the show on social media such as Twitter, Facebook, but yeah, um, we'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment on the website post, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, yeah, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. And thanks again, Ryan.